Okay. So audience, we're having a lot of fun here trying to get the doc to move into the best position. <laughs> so audience, I want to welcome you. This is CB Bowman Live. And today on Thursdays, we talk about workplace racial equality. And we're so honored today to have a representative from Africa, specifically from South Africa, Dr. Mangezi. Did I pronounce your name correctly? We can't hear you, Doc. So I think you unplugged yourself. Try again. Nope, still can't hear you. So go back to the other mic. There you go. There you go. Now I there can hear you. you. There you so go. So how did I do on pronouncing? hear me now. Yes. <laughs> that was perfect. That was perfect. Oh, I've been practicing and practicing, and I thought, I'm going to screw this up. Not because your name is so difficult, but because I'm dyslexic. So I read it differently than what you see it as. And there are times when I yes, actually screw yes. up my name, which is C.B., Bowman Ottomanelli now. And my husband yeah. comes after me and says, you can't spell my last name correctly. <laughs> we just got married July 4th. Give me about 10 years and I'll be able to get it. <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> so I'm not even going to attempt your last name. So what, why don't you say it for the audience? Hello, audience. Uh, my name is Monges Makalima, and uh, I think in my grand in my grandfather's language, it actually means the one who reprimands. So the one it's who the one who make, reprimands, but also makes people smarter um, because it's a wise man. That's what the Makalima uh, actually means. Fabulous. Now, here's the thing. You're going in and out using this mic. So I think we have to go back to the other mic, the, the round one. It, it's, it's the same mic. It's the same mic I was using. Yeah. I haven't changed it. I just removed it from the cradle. Oh, okay. Well, maybe put it back in the cradle then. <laughs> All right. Because <laughs> right, as let's you move, see. It, it's making noise. And I want people who are listening in, who are kind enough to listen in, to hear every word that you say, because what you have to say is so important. And it gives us a global perspective versus just an American perspective. And I please, I want people to write in on the chat and participate. Okay, so we're, we're almost set. Okay, Doc, let's see if we can hear you. Now we can't hear you, so flip the button. Not yet. <laughs> Try it again. <clears throat> nope, still can't hear you. Still can't hear you. Try it again. Ah, there you go. Now, right. now we can hear you. Okay. <laughs> you no, found the no, right channel. <clears throat> yes, I think I have now. Can you, can okay. you hear me? We can hear you now. 
Okay. So in full disclosure, everyone, I want you all to know, clap your hands, Dr. Mungesi is on the faculty of workplace racial equality. And he is such a powerful member, uh, helping us to set up an incredible uh, training program for organizations that are struggling with how to address the whole frame of workplace racial equality. So reach out to us if you're interested and we'll talk to you more about it. Meantime, I want Doc, I want you to tell the story because it's an incredible story about how you first saw race. And when, when, when was it that you first saw a white person live? That is just, you know, we don't think about that in the United States, but when you tell me that yes. story, I was riveted. So yes. tell me about how you yes. were raised yes. around color. Yes. Look, it's, a, it's an interesting story. And I think uh, it's, it was when I was doing my coaching training when I uh, had to confront it um, and, and, and confront my relationship with race and realize that uh, in the 80s, because I grew up in apartheid South Africa, and uh, at that time, um, black people lived at least, uh, um, what, 15, 20 miles away from uh, the city centers and, and the CBDs away from uh, white people. So we didn't actually see white people uh, quite a lot. I would see some white people on TV, but I didn't know they're white people. It would just be people uh, that are kind of acting on television, but I didn't know it's white people. They just look like like humans, right? And I notice I'm getting out of out of frame because I'm getting, I'm getting quite excited about the story all the time. But then uh, I think it was around the late 80s, I had to go to my mother's to, to meet my mother uh, at, uh, in town because she worked for one of the big uh, stores. And when I got there, there were like these white people all over the place. And I'm going to, oh my God, like, so there's like <clears throat> some people like those people I see on TV, they actually live also in town. But you know what was so sad was that they, 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 they looked like they didn't actually want us there because I was a kid, so I didn't know. I was probably about nine, ten years old, so I didn't know what 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 that was all about. All about when we were playing as children in the aisles, and they chased us away and told us to go and sit outside and and play outside where the black people should be sitting. Wow. And that was my, that was my first that was my first interaction with the fact that I am not I am not enough, um, and it was quite fascinating for me. I'm kind of quite annoyed by the fact that I keep getting out of uh, out of range. So hold on, hold on. Yeah. Okay. So That's so it was a, it was a it it was a it was a bit um, annoying, uh, but surprising for a child, only annoying as I was growing up because I realized and built up rage for that rejection. And I didn't know that I had until I had to confront it. Wow. And so what did your mother say about all of this? Look, look I think you, you have to understand how it was here uh, in that 
it 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 was it was something we don't necessarily even have to fight because it was so in 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 my in my father's language isizulu uh, we have a phrase uh, that says I'm just gonna go lose trans, uh, English translation. What's been well, created? What's been what's first, give it, first? Give it to us in your language, in your father's language, and then translate. Okay, <clears throat> okay cool. So in Isizulu, we have a phrase that says uh, meaning what has happened is the same as that which has been created. So it felt, in in a sense, like creation. We would accept it and surrender to it. So I think my mother was just wanting to make a living and be, make money for us to bring home to the township at, at where, I, at where we live. So we, except for obviously the politicians and some of us, uh, some of our people who I later had to join, who fought for the struggle of, 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 of freeing or changing this, it was really accepted. So she, didn't have to say, she didn't say anything at the time. And I think my grandmother, who was more the person that I was raised, I, I was raised by while my mother was working, um, she had taught a lot about how to be human. And she also worked for a white Italian family. Uh, and then they would give her clothing, they would give her books. And I think a lot about learning about Africa I learned from those books that she was bringing um, as, as a kid and we would wear these clothes and she would talk very beautifully about um, the, the, this Italian family, I won't mention the name. Um, she would talk very beautifully about the Italian family and how they treated her and how they gave her work, both in, in the kitchens at the farm, but also in uh, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the company because the, the, the boss, her boss, was also running a tiling and painting company in town. Wow. And so, you know, I have so many questions that come out of that uh, presentation of information. And so do you feel that your grandmother and your mother, this is a tough question, did you feel that they were not protecting you by feeling upset over the situation of you being chased out of a store or not being accepted how what was their internal response no i don't i, I don't think so I, I mean you should remember this was now the 80s uh, which means we had been living with apartheid for about 40 years give or take so it had been a way of life which meant uh, us uh, living in the townships, that's our lives. So when I grew up with, with my with uh, black people that surrounded me, they were my people, they were, pe they were their people. So I had no desire or connection or, um, I mean, even today, most of the time, and because I actually think that's more to your answer, that's more the situation than anything else. I've never really felt a need to associate necessarily, not that there's anything wrong with whiteness, but I never really felt any need to associate with whiteness because I actually grew up with blackness all over me. Wow, and, and that, so that's a it powerful statement. 
Yeah, I, I mean, even even now with all the work that I do, um, because there's a lot of people that sometimes look at me and expect me to be raging against whiteness, and I go like, I don't rage because it's it's kind of irrelevant. It's never it's never been relevant to me. It only became relevant as I was growing up in my teens when I was like probably 18, 16, 17, going to university and starting to realize and feel it for myself, the, the separation, the segregation. And then that's when it became personal. Uh, but before then, it wasn't personal. It was like, oh, okay. That's how it is. So, so <laughs> with that perspective, which is quite unique for us, I feel, in the United States, how do you view the struggles or the, the situation or the environment, whatever you want to call it, how do you view what's happening here? Uh, are you are you referring to to America or the world at large? America first, okay. and then the world at yeah, large. I have to say, it is very scary um, uh, to 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 uh, continuously be confronted with so much violence. Because it is, it is a, it is a very violent. As, as I grew up, remember now, um, a lot of my a lot of my my opinions are informed now by studies, um, because I've, I've 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 studied quite a lot in the area of of diversity, in the area of identity as a psychologist. Um, I work quite a bit and very closely with blackness and whiteness and difference. Um, being male being an African male. In fact, my master's thesis starts, starts very interestingly as, um, as a black African male growing up in South Africa of the 1990s, here is my perspective. And so by, 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 its, by its nature, it was a revolt in terms of that's not how academically you're supposed to start your your thesis. So essentially, it's in my my assessment of of America and, and and the race politics is always shocks me at how violent and how in your face uh, uh, that difference is. And and uh, because we have it, we have we have apartheid here uh, quite a lot still, even long after twenty five years after we've gotten um, our democracy and all of that. But it's sophisticated. It is, uh, it is subtle. Um, but the American—I mean, I was looking at the statistics. I was—I was watching uh, one of the presentations. Only four black CEOs in the Fortune 500 companies. That's horrible for, for today. When you go to Harvard and you go to uh, uh, you go to Yale and you go to all uh, Columbia University and you see how many black people are studying. And you realize they will get out of there and do what? Mm -hmm. but, but so I it's, it's yeah. kind of sad. So, so are you saying that in Africa there are more black CEOs? I mean, that must sound like a stupid question, but I'm asking in comparison to the United States. That's yeah. That's number one question. We, we do. Yeah, of course, it would make sense. I mean, of course, you know. It, it absolutely makes sense. But but I'm also hearing you say that your 
approach to racism is much more sophisticated than it is here in the United States, that we, we deal with racism in terms of rage and you deal with it more sophisticated. What does that difference look like to you? All right. Sure, yeah. <laughs> when you put it like that, it sounds quite smarter than I than, than I meant, but yes. Um, <laughs> I think the first thing, just, just to go back, um, we are, um, uh, we, we have more CEOs, we have, I think- Chris, well, let, me, let, me, let me just add something to that. You say yeah. that you've had apartheid for 40 years. We have had yeah. slavery for much more than 40 years. So yes. what happened before your apartheid? Yes. Yes. You know, how, do, how do we synchronize the two or can't we? Yes, yes, uh, we, we can actually. Uh, uh, I, I'm glad you asked that. I, I actually like that question because we never go there. We always act as if um, Africa's history in, in totally anyway, because uh, Africa is 52 countries and starts when when the white man landed on the continent which is kind of not true right and so in, in, in apartheid south africa essentially before uh, the 1920s uh, what was happening in south africa was the fact that people uh, there were people were people and white people were guests uh, so in and in order to understand that you actually have to understand what the rest of the continent looks like, because South Africa is probably the whitest uh, country in the whole continent, essentially, mm -hmm. um, with five percent, five percent of uh, of white people in it, right? So, <laughs> so you have you have to imagine how much it's of a little the ratio difference. <laughs> yeah, it is because there's five percent of white people. But they occupy about 65% um, uh, of top leadership positions, and about 28% or so uh, are black people, of which about 10, 10, 15% are, are black women. So we 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 are really making a pro. We are really making progress in terms of what apartheid look, look like. The only challenge in terms of the work we need to do and i think it's the work that the world needs to really start also moving into because i think that's the problem the issue here the parts that we are caught up with cb is the paradox of the skin the race because that's a red herring forget um uh, so say my, that again uh, Dad, you, you broke up it's a red herring it's a it's a misleading thing the fact that we we keep sitting and talking about race which we should but we should be talking about race in in a very intersectional way and we need to talk about race in an economic way because when we can talk about race in an economic way in a benefit way we would actually start realizing that actually all of us are people who are really just looking to feed our families, to grow our, our, our wealth, and to connect and contribute to the world. And I think most of Africa is like that, except we have a lot of multinationals that then come in and try to plant a lot of that violence 
in, in terms of the way the, the other people think about the world to say, look, Africa is open. The second biggest continent in the world, it's open, come through. That's how my grandmother was. In fact, I have to tell you, um, I have to tell you this because you like, you like the old stories uh, about uh, my growing up. One of the things that used to annoy me growing up with my grandma, at my grandmother's house was the idea that uh, people would come in, uh, would come in for a day and they would stay for a month. And it would annoy us. <laughs> what was it? The cooking, the conversation? What was it? <laughs> no, generosity. We have a, because that's the essence of humanity. And I'm bringing this story to talk really about what I'm talking about when I talk about economics, uh, economics of race, right? Um, so my grandmother was, a, was an epitome of an African woman in a sense that when you come and visit then that's how our culture is in many in many places whether you're zulu Kosa, uh, uh, and all of the other different uh, 2500 different identities but there was one thing that we have in common we call it Botu, humanity uh, ubuntu in isizulu um, is when somebody shows up they are a human being wow. before we ask them before we ask them who are they in terms of position, before we ask them who are they in terms of gender, in terms of race, in ter we, we, we see them. That's why the greetings, the greeting in, in, in many of our languages, in Isuzulu, for example, my, my father's language, we say saubona, meaning I see you. And mm -hmm. then the next person would respond and say, Yebo, uh, meaning yes, I'm here, right? And and that's where it starts. And I think what, what you asked me, going back to the question about what, what do I think then about the, the racial violence in America, um, uh, uh, but also uh, the race relations in America, not just not not just the violence, um, is that people don't see people, people see the color, <gasps> and that's a misleading conversation that we are having when we are having conversations about race we need to ask ourselves what would it be like if all of us were human in america you know how would we treat each other you know it's it's scary when you really go down deep inside you and think you say to yourself i'm not racist i'm not and when i say racist i, I mean yes. not just color it could be it could be religion it could be you know language i'm not yes. however however the first thing that happens is you see the exterior yes. you don't yes. see the person and it's a scary yes. scary acceptance yes within yes. the nature of humans, I'm gonna go there and say in the United States, because if we yes. compare it to Africa, when it's part of your vocabulary to say, I see you, I'm yes. here. My God, that is so powerful. It gives me the chills. 
that how Can I often, add something? How often are we missing the essence of another person because we don't see you? Yes. yes. Can I add something to that? Um, just to give you an example. I mean, you know Nakonde. Nakonde um, is uh, uh, Zambia. Our, our board member. Yes, from Zambia. When we met, Nakonde and I, we, never, we didn't know each other uh, 10 years ago. And I went to Zambia for the first time to go and do uh, work there for one of the major banks here. And we don't know each other. We meet on the passageway of uh, the Pricewaterhouse building there, which was the biggest building at that time in Zambia. And immediately we clicked, not because she's Zambian and African or because we are in coaching. No, because the first thing we are taught is you when you see a person it doesn't matter whether you know them or not you greet them and to greet them is so i i i she was in the cafeteria i don't know her but i pass and say how are you sis how are you and not sit? because she it's how are you my sister how are you sis because she is my sister it doesn't matter that I know her. And we sat down and she said, who are you? And then I told her and we said, oh my God. When she now found out that no, I'm running the coaching body and all of those things, obviously we connected at another level, which is now a professional level and the kind of work that we do. But before then, even if we had stopped at just having a meal together, we were human. So to bring a little bit of science then into it, um, because do you know that Freud, by the way, a little bit of tidbit, do you know that Freud studied in Africa and the psychoanalysis theory by Freud was actually a, an, an African spiritual framework? No way. What else am I going to learn from yes. you today, my brother? Yes. Yes. So um, Freud... Freud puts it very nicely. So I think when I, I mean, I always hated psychoanalysis because it never really made sense to my rational mind. And I think many people who studied psychology would, would connect with it. But um, when I now started having to do real work with it in terms of um, human relations and understanding human relations and why we act so crazy and why we are so stupid when we are actually supposed to be human and get along. Because a lot of the racism is stupid, honestly. Am I lying? Racism is no. stupid. Genderism yes. is stupid. It's, it's, it's a waste of the human spirit, the human mind. It's, yeah. it's sad. It's throwing yeah. it all. It's taking the human mind and throwing it in the garbage. Yes. We actually don't see the mind. So this is where I was going, is that, um, so uh, uh, when Freud divided his um, uh, theory of personality into the id, the ego, and the superego, I think the, what, what he was actually saying was, was a chemetic framework of the car, the bar, and I think there's, a, there's another one that I always forget when I have to mention it, but it's essentially the mind, the body, and the spirit, right? So mm -hmm. when we meet the people, in, in much of what racism has taught us the last 400 years, um, because it's actually a very new thing. It's not human. 
It's a new thing that has no scientific basis. We learned to look at the body, mm. right? And that's all we it calls it the primary dimensions of being. Your gender, your height, your weight, your skin color, it's things you can do nothing about because they were actually created by earth, the earth that you are on. They were not created by you. So you are not that, you are more. That, that is only a small part. Then your mind and your spirit are actually your essence of human. In fact, uh, in, 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 in chemetic spiritual framework, which we also believe in uh, here where I come from, is that your body um, is only really temporary. It's a temporary space that's holding the spirit. So when I see you, and I remember when we met at the Marshall Goldsmith, uh, we connected. I, I, like, I didn't have to say anything, and then we connected as you were going up and down, and not because of your skin color, but because first I see the spirit. And then when it comes then to, because somebody would say, so what does, how does it work then when we're working with white people? Um, is that first, we, it's people. But now Freud talks about defense mechanisms. So many times people who've learned to be racist come in with a defense of their spirit like this. Which means, and that's why sometimes I look at these masks and I'm like, mm. Are they protecting, in that defense, are they trying to protect their spirit? Or are they trying to hide? Which is it? Well, uh, both. Because remember, uh, but I think the first thing is an unconscious effort because they've been taught. They, they've been taught to, to be afraid mm -hmm. of working with the spirit. In, in fact, that's what, that's what for a long time Freud was misunderstood because he was trying to tell people that you guys are repressed. You know, uh, we have, we have, just one second. We have a message from Goldie and she has to leave. So I want to be sure to get her comment in. Emotion is a universal language, but it's sad to see how society ignores the emotions of others based on their own personal dislikes. Then she says, wow, beautiful culture celebrating the existence. So thank you so much. I'm so sorry you have to leave us. Yes. Yeah. So, so just to finish this piece, and you have to stop me, by the way. I don't stop, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a trigger for you to continue. So, so we're good. We're good. <laughs> yeah, so let's throw, throw some questions. But I think what I was saying then is that Freud was talking about repression, and, and, and which was a, a, what he was actually um, trying to get the people in, 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 in Europe at that time to see that uh, what had happened as the people were fleeing the continent and moving further away from the continent, they were learning ways of fear. They were learning ways of protection and they lost contact with just being human, just being here. In Nigeria, they have a phrase, when I see you and you're not doing anything, you're not saying anything, you're sitting, just relax. Then they say, she's just there mm. which means i still see you 
And is that okay? Yes. To just because you can just be. You can just be. And I think in the United States, for most, uh, uh, this is only my thoughts. Most cases, if somebody's just there, there needs to be an explanation attached to it. There's an uncomfortableness with just being there. I know I'm a high introvert. And so <laughs> I like to just be there. And I know it makes my extroverted friends uncomfortable. And so I've learned to say, I'm processing. Yes. It's okay, I'm processing. Yes. So you don't have yes. to worry. Yes. I'm not being the black angry woman, right? Yes. I'm, <laughs> I hear what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> and I am deciding to take apart what you've said, put it back together again, and then determine if I can add value to the dialogue. Yes. So I'm processing. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, you, you know, I can tell you this. This is where, I mean, as coaches, that's kind of like the work we are trying to do, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, we are trying to get people to reconnect with, with that. So when I started being introduced to coaching, um, it was actually quite funny. And um, I mean, there were 18 of us in the classroom um, and I was the only black person, uh, which is always annoying, but it, it, it had been a pattern for a long time. Um, and I, I was sitting there and going like, but this is what my grandmother used to do. She would just sit with us and just be quiet. And we just quiet, we just play, but it's quiet. Could be a radio playing in the background, but there is no need to do anything. It's just to be. And when you think about a lot of the Southern cultures, um, uh, you think about a lot of, because most of the Spanish are actually former African colonies, um, a, a lot of them, they still have that siesta. Um, oh gosh, yes. Connected. The Italians still have it. Um, the, the, the Greeks still yeah. have it. The, yeah. So, so the, it, and, and, it and you know, it's interesting. When I first started traveling abroad and everything would close at noon to two o'clock, yes. what the hell's going on yes. here? Don't, don't these people want to make any money? I mean, I was so uncomfortable yes. with it. And, <laughs> and yes. now that I'm older, I'm going, how wise were they? <laughs> Yeah. And, and, and would it scare you to realize that's actually 83% of the world that's doing that? Uh, it's shocking. And now that I'm older, no, it would not scare me. When I was younger, yes. Is the world closing? <laughs> yeah. it, essentially, it's probably three, three or four countries in Europe that still run on, a, uh, on, a, on an analog clock in terms of... Uh, we are busy, we are, we are working, but a lot of the countries in Europe are actually embracing a lot more of, oh my God, we actually forgot to be human, uh, such that in France, they actually laugh at you as an American, uh, or yes. even us Africans who are tra trained 
in in Western ways because I am I'm, I'm very weird uh, in that I'm, I'm, I'm I've been trained in both Western and African schools, so I can carry both as I need it, right? Um, but um, in in France, they actually laugh at many Americans and many of us Southerners who are having a British mindset uh, when we want to be working uh, for a living. When they actually do the other way around, they leave to work. Oh, sorry, that's the other way around. They they yeah. work to yeah. leave yes. while many of us leave to work, and yeah. which is kind of weird. But I, I will tell you an experience I had where it, it worked sort of against me because then I got into the European mindset of everything closing at noon. And I was in Beirut during the war with a fiance at the time. And uh, he was off doing photography and I was walking in the city by myself and it was noon and everything started closing. And so I went into the shops and I said, oh, is it siesta time? And they looked at me and they said, yeah. no, the war is coming closer. We have to close. <laughs> and so, it's important to know with the culture you're in at the moment. Right? Yes. But I quickly scurried back. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yes. So, so we have to be careful of not making anything universal even if it's good, yes. we have to be yes. aware of uh, surroundings. And I want to stop a minute. Holly writes in and she says, you are such a beautiful human being. If we could all adopt your way of looking at humanity, we might have a chance of creating a better world. This is a refreshing conversation. We lose so much by ignoring the gifts and essence of all others in this world. Our biases and judgments cause us so much trouble. Oh, it's so true. And Holly is a beautiful, beautiful spirit. She is a member Thank of you. the Association of Corporate Executive Coaches and just a powerhouse of a woman, a powerhouse. So she's yeah. giving great you, respect Holly. to you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Thank I do you. want to go back I, to something that I, I think, I'm sorry, Doc, go ahead. No, 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 I was saying I try, I try. It's, it, it, look, it's, it's really hard. You said something before you move on. You said something just before you spoke about Holly, which I kind of wanted to latch on very quickly because I think it's one of the challenges that we struggle with in the West, in the world today anyway, um, which is the whole idea that uh, there's not one story. In fact, um, um, when I was doing my, my doctoral thesis, one of the things I was trying to find was just talking about credibility and finding what makes a human being credible, right? Um, but what I came up with was eight factors that actually make us different, right? And, and, and they don't even include race or skin color or gender, or although they, they can include it, but I didn't count it, right? So what became interesting, um, uh, CB, um, in terms of that was realizing that we are all trying to look like somebody else, yet we are actually one in eight billion. The 7.85 billion people on earth as we count, but not a single person on earth, I haven't met 
all, but so far the ones I have met, not a single one has the same combination of those eight elements. What are those eight elements? Give them to me slowly, Ooh. I'm writing it down. <laughs> well, so I'm just gonna go very high level. Your skills, your knowledge, the things that you know for sure, your values, what you hold dear is very different. My research shows that actually only 18% of the people in the world uh, hold the same values, which means the chance that your values are different from the next person is about 80, uh, 83%, 82%. So uh, we wow. should already be aware uh, that the decisions I make and the decisions you make are informed by very different spaces inside right? Uh, your passions, so your attitudes, so the things you like, right? So um, I love this kind of stuff, for example, but somebody else loves to make cars and somebody else likes, loves to work with their hands. And we judge people who work with their hands as opposed to people who work in the office, which is kind of weird. Um, who's going to yeah. repair our cars, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the plumbing. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. Yes. And then um, the, the the next one is the the I'm, I'm trying to find my back my way back. Our motives. Um. So Maslow, for example, talks about us working on a hierarchy of needs. Our motives are very different, such that I think the source of influence for all of us, if we actually understand what you need versus what I need we actually can create much more power in terms of influencing each other than if we make somebody look like me need the same things that I need, right? Yes, yes. Uh, because we are at different places. Then uh, the personality, I think people know a lot more about the personality uh, stuff. And I think there's, there's the whole personality theory that says there's about 72 types of personalities which means there's actually a 71 to one uh, uh, odds that the next person is different from you anyway, right? And then your attainments, this is the second last one, your attainments or the results you've achieved in your life, uh, the successes, which many times, and this is always also interesting, when you work with Africans, I don't know in, I don't know in America because I haven't worked a lot with African-Americans from an American perspective. I've worked mostly with uh, uh, Caucasian uh, Americans. And, and, and what I find in Africa is that many times, uh, and in India and in Asia, because those are the places I've worked, uh, many Asians don't celebrate the successes because they take them as if it's an accident that has just happened. It was meant to happen. It's coming from God. Right. That that um, does happen in the United States. However, it's prominent amongst women. Uh -huh. yes, yes, yes. And we need to start asking why. Uh, why have we created a world where people actually have successes that they are afraid to celebrate? Uh, right? Uh, because um, I have back to w uh, WRE very quickly. Uh, in terms of some of the work we are doing, because the stats that uh, have come out show, uh, particularly in America, that when you um, when you are applying for a job and you're a black 
woman and you have a black sounding name, you actually have a 10% chance only. You have a what only? Being appointed. You have a what only? 10%. A 10% chance only of being appointed into a job. Uh, as you know, opposed no, to now, we, we have to stop here because we have to talk about this. First, give me the eighth one, and then we're going to go back and talk about this. All right. So the eighth one is uh, is purpose. Um, in the so purpose. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, purpose. And my my worldview, and it might not be shared, is that each and every single one of us are here on Earth to do something. That's why we are we are coming in, and we are different. And once you find out what that is, uh, in fact, Malido Masome, uh, he is actually in Harvard, which is always uh, interesting. He's, done, he's doing some fascinating work, but he's a Ghanaian shaman. And he puts it very nicely. He says, when a child is conceived, the community knows what the child is there for. Not born, conceived. So as soon as your mother discovers that she is with child the community comes together already to start saying who is this child and what are they here to do and mm. that purpose once you start really connecting with it and living it almost everything else in your life aligns and that's, that's the work i do now with people it's kind of helping them to align that stuff because then all the other seven stuff I mentioned just kind of fall into place. Oh. So I want to go back. God, my mind is exploding with information. You do this to me all the time. Uh, I have to rest after. I have my brain has to rest. But but I want to go back to things. Apartheid coming out of apartheid and us coming out of racism. I want to compare that. And two, yes. the attainment part, the naming part. This is a big discussion that I have within myself. Yes. Black Americans, we no longer say African Americans because not all of us are from Africa, right? Okay. Black <laughs> Americans have paid homage to our mother country as we define Africa, by giving their children African names. This is in vogue. Yes. My heart bleeds because it, the blood in my heart doesn't know which way to go. I don't know whether to celebrate this. I don't have children that I have birthed or to have fear because the minute that name goes on a resume, they have reduced their opportunities, not for the job, for the interview by 90%. Yes. And so these children are, have, we say, have a star cross, I think I have the expression right, going into the job market their income for the rest of their lives is going to be yes. affected because in that generation coming up, 
We will not see the end of racism. We will not. And so therefore, what are their parents doing in this desire to pay homage to our motherland? Yep. My heart bleeds because yep. I don't have an answer. Yeah. I, I think I think you do actually have an answer, uh, CB. It's just that it's a very difficult answer because it requires a lot more work than we are in control of. It requires us to really get back to being more human. It's not about us uh, removing racism. It's about us becoming more human. But we won't because get the more there. We won't get there in their generation. And I'm sorry, I'm starting to tear up because I, I, okay. I'm so frustrated because I understand what we're trying to do theoretically, but then there's the reality of my race not being able to have the money to take care of themselves health-wise, the whole Maslow's hierarchy and their children, it's, it's, it's killing me. Yeah, and, and I, I'm wondering, CB, um, because I feel that pain and there are days when I'm sitting in bed and I can't come out because this is like the entire work of all of us, right? Yes. Um, I, I feel that if we started having integrated conversations about, uh, let, let, me, let, me put, let me put some, some, some uh, science again to it. Our brains perpetuate what we spend time focusing on yes and you know this there's lots of research that shows this haven't you asked yourself why you get to spaces and we people create opportunities for us to speak about race as opposed to us speaking about being human. Because that's the secret. It's a tough one. But the secret is how can I be, how can we, all of us, be more human? Because if we are going to fight racism, my belief, and I don't know if it's true that that, that would work, but my belief is that when you're working with something like racism, we need to smother it mm -hmm. with love. We need to create so much beauty that there is no space. But we give racists so much time, so much space, so much airtime, such that actually the racists believe if they are the default. Mm. In fact, there's, there's, there's so much data that shows just between
Dr. Monsegui, your camera froze in a, at a critical point. So what is, um, if you would just hang on for a few minutes and see if it will unfreeze. Remember, we're talking to a different country and so technology will happen. And if it doesn't, then uh, if it doesn't cooperate, then what we'll do is we will end this session and continue it again. We will definitely have Dr. Mangesi back on uh, to talk to us because he is such an incredible spirited person. And um, we all want to hear what he has to say. So it looks like he was disconnected. Let's give it a few minutes to see if he can come back on. And in the meantime, please feel free to send us some more questions and comments now that we have time uh, to actually look at the chat. And um, let's talk about the work that we're doing in workplace racial equality, which is to provide organizations and people within that organizations to have raw and true discussions about creating equality. I was gonna say racism, but after what Dr. Mangesi just said, it's really about how do we create equality in the workplace? What is it that we really need to do? And part of what we really need to do is to move this whole thing out from the center, from the core of an organization, and to have some discussions around what's eating at us, what what is what are we questioning so that we can't move forward? What can we do so that we can move forward? So I hope you all reach out to us. It looks like doctor is back. Hi doc, you're back, good. Hi, yes, sorry, I don't know what happened today. <laughs> That's okay. It's technology at its best. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, yeah. I think we actually, I, I think, I think actually we were lucky uh, yeah. that we've gone this long without being interrupted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, technology likes to put in its two cents. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So, Doc, I, I wanted to continue that part of the conversation, uh, but I also, I noticed we have only a few minutes left, and th there's an important point that I want to get to that's, well, I shouldn't say important, no, the rest wasn't, because trust me, it was a phenomenal conversation. But, but when, I, when I hear you talk about sophisticated, right, how did Africa approach coming out of apartheid in a more sophisticated way than us trying to come out of racism in a warrior-like manner? What what were the actions that allowed your country to be more sophisticated than our country, even though we like to believe we're more sophisticated? Yeah. I don't even know I have the answer, CB, but um, I think it relates very nicely to what we were talking about just before we got cut off. Um, that says, I think the, the unique perspective about being African um, is that first of all you are born of love so mm -hmm. that's all we have. that's 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 how we learn everywhere which means uh, because people talk a lot about nelson mandela 
and, and, and the transition and all of that. But I think if we were to tell history a, pro, a, lot, bro, a lot broader, uh, we would say uh, many of us were just ready to be human. All we needed, all, and I think that's all people want, is to just be left alone, not necessarily alone, but people need to just be left to be themselves as human beings. And I think what you're saying is that difference in the, yes, the, and the I, difference. If I can finish that sentence, if, it, yes. if it's okay. So I think the sophistication here is not so much from the perspective about uh, how, how we approach it. It's about how then the, the perpetrator of racism um, is essentially can is able to hide because mm -hmm. they are not meeting any kind of overt violence and they would look really bad if they were to be that overt in their violence so that's how then they get into a whole sophisticated ways of disguising this process. We have laws um, in this country, and I think we've done a, a little bit better than many, many parts of the world from that perspective, in terms of at least putting laws in place. Of course, the challenge is about enforcement because every new government has its own problems. Yeah, I agree. And I think also it takes me back to something you said earlier about uh, blacks in Africa it is their homeland originally. And so when apartheid came in, for lack of a better term, think of it this way, it came in as a guest. And it was then uninvited as a guest. Yes. In the United States, for blacks, it's not our homeland. We are guests here and we want to stay as guests that, that no, no, I'm not saying that right. We wanna stay as not guests, but as owners, as being human in this space. You're saying, no, I've got it wrong. It's not true. Again, it's about how the perpetrator of violence and the per perpetrator of segregation uh, wants us to believe ah but we are i mean one of the first things i wanted to do when i came to the us many years ago was to walk was to walk uh, central park it had yes. always been something i wanted to do because i think and as unknown to many people central park was actually the seat uh, of of um uh, of a an african tribe it was essentially a chiefdom for a long time, long before the white man arrived there. A lot of Mexico had, was under a lot of African kings and queens long before it became the Mexico of the US. So it's not true that you are guests what and i like um i like uh, uh abdullah ibrahim 
who is, I'm sure, uh, one of our leading jazz artists here, he puts it very nicely. He says, uh, people, people were taken, slaves were not taken out of Africa to America. People, shamans, doctors, healers, doc uh, uh, teachers were taken from the continent to another part. But before then, we had been traveling the world long before, but they were told as part of the whole slavery movement, which is a, 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 a system that was an economic system, because that's all it is. It's really about removing the benefits. So nobody is a guest anywhere. The, the borders that we've created, and the, 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 if I can say this last thing, the, the Khoi, who are uh, essentially some of the oldest um, humanoid uh, people here uh, on, on, on this part of the world, uh, they, have a they say, they put it very nicely when they say that you can put your walls everywhere and the fences and close me out, but who owns the air? that goes over your walls because that belongs to God who created all of us. I stand so corrected and so beautifully corrected. I accept, I accept. Thank you so much, my brother. And please come back again. There's so much more for us to talk about. And think about this, wouldn't the world and especially America right now, be in such a good place if everyone could have the kind of conversation we just had and the kind of conversation we wanna have in our organization, WRE, Workplace Racial Equality. That is our goal. So thank you for opening those doors across countries, across continents. Thank you for bringing the air over I'm grabbing it. <laughs> Audience, please join us next week. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Ciao. Thank you so much. Please join us next week for another great, enriching, real conversation on CB Bowman Live Workplace Racial Equality. Go with success everyone and go with humanity.